Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Lent, we are doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus, where we examine various parables that Jesus taught during his ministry. The goal of this series is to examine the messages from these parables and how they are asking us to change internally through our spirituality and externally through our behaviors. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading. Come to us from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now? that my master is taking the position away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, Sit down quickly and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today is a continuation of this parable. It's Luke 16, 10 to 13. Jesus says, Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So during Lent, we've been doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus. And a parable is a short story that is told with the explicit purpose of illustrating a moral or spiritual lesson. When parables are told well, they can convey deep truth and meaning to the hearers. And as you are probably well aware, Jesus told parables all the time throughout his ministry. And so during this series, we're going to be looking at various parables that Jesus told. And we're going to be asking the question, what exactly does he want us to take away from these parables? What's the message? How does Jesus want us to change internally, spiritually, and externally through our actions? So last week, we talked about two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. 
This week, we're going to talk about one of Jesus' most bizarre parables. It is probably the most puzzling of all the ones that he tells. And this is the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, I think it's important for us to, first of all, kind of get into the specifics of this. I want to kind of go through the parable to make sure we understand everything that's going on, because that really helps us when it comes to trying to discern the meaning. So the basis of the parable is that there's a rich man who owns lots of land, and he has a manager who he hires to oversee his assets. This is not unlike when a wealthy person today will have a wealth manager to oversee their portfolio. But unfortunately for the rich man, this particular manager, he ends up squandering his master's property. This would be like us trying to invest with Bernie Madoff, and you think your money's in good hands, but then it ends up being squandered away in some kind of massive Ponzi scheme. Now today, with Bernie Madoff, when he did that, he ended up going to prison. And back in Jesus' day, that could happen as well. But sometimes what would happen is that they would just let you go, and your reputation would be so badly damaged that you could find no work elsewhere. And so you'd live in poverty for the rest of your life. So that's the basis of the parable. That's essentially what happens. It's fairly simple. You have the rich landowner. He has land. Land gets squandered by the dishonest manager. Now, in terms of the characters in this story, it's fairly par for the course in the sense that the rich landowner, the master in the story, is, of course, representative of God. But what's unusual about this particular parable is the way God operates in this particular story. So the rich landowner is God, and the rich landowner actually, with the land that he owns, is a sharecropper. So he has a sharecropping system. Now, what is sharecropping? Sharecropping is when you have people who live on the land, and those particular people who are on the land, they have to go and take the produce, they take the yield, they bring it to market, and they're required to do a certain amount in order to pay for the fact that they are living on this land. That's the exchange that they go through. So in the parable, what we can find is that this particular rich man, he owns an olive grove and he owns wheat fields. And so from the olive grove, the people living on that, they are expected to go and take the olives and press them and produce olive oil and take that to market. And the people who produce the wheat, their job is to go and take the wheat and bring that to market as well. Now, what's important to understand about this parable is that the rich landowner is actually not involved in the day-to-day operations of managing the land. In a sense, he's an absentee landlord. And that's actually kind of the perfect analogy for God in our world. So God, of course, owns everything that is here. God is responsible for the creation of everything. But the fact is, God is not physically present here to run all of it. God's not walking around, barking out orders, saying, do this, do that, you know, make sure you're taking care of my property. No, God has entrusted the management of this land to others. God has entrusted the management of the resources of this earth to us. And so because we are the ones who have been given this responsibility, just like in the parable, there will be one day where God is going to call us to an accounting. We are going to have to sit down and see how we utilize those resources that God has given to us. Now, if we use the resources well, then God will 
reward us. If we have squandered the resources, like the manager, then God will punish us. Or at least that's how you would think this parable is supposed to go. But it goes in a very different direction from that. So the manager who is overseeing this property, he knows that he's going to be sitting down with the rich man to look at the profits and losses. And he's trying to figure out a way that he could ingratiate himself to his master, knowing that his master is going to be very upset. So what he does is he goes out to the people who own these various pieces of properties or who work on these various pieces of property, and he's trying to collect the debts that they owe. So he goes to the olive grove, he goes to the people who work there, he says, how much do you owe? So you owe 100 jars of olive oil, well that's fine, don't worry about it, cut your bill in half, give me 50, you're taken care of. He goes to the people who have to harvest the wheat, and he says, how much do you owe? 100 containers of wheat, no problem, give me 80, and we'll call it even. So, he goes through this process, he gets it, and then he's sitting down with the master. He's sitting down with the rich man, and they're going through the assets, and he hands over some of the money that he was able to get back for him. Now, what's interesting about this is that the master is actually quite pleased with this. It's unexpected for him. And in fact, what it says specifically in the story, which I just think this is so amazing, it says, his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, what you would assume would happen is that the rich man would sit there and say, you know what, I don't trust you, I see you as somebody who lies and cheats, and I don't want anything to do with you anymore. But he doesn't do that. Instead, the rich man, who is God in this scenario, says, you know what, good job. I wasn't expecting that from you. I wasn't expecting you to be able to go out and to figure out how to do that. That was really, really good that you were able to make that happen. So his way of thinking actually does ingratiate him to the master. Now, what's also interesting about this is that Jesus goes on after telling the parable to continue to praise the dishonest manager. Jesus draws a distinction between his followers, the people who are disciples of Jesus, and people who don't follow him. Jesus calls his followers the disciples of light, and he calls the people who don't follow him the children of this age. So it's the children of light, the children of this age. And what he says to the children of light, to his followers, is he says that they actually need to be more like the dishonest manager. They need to act more like him. And then Jesus says something that I think is absolutely bonkers, but I just think this is so amazing. He tells his disciples that they should make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. In other words, Jesus wants you to act shrewdly. He is asking his disciples to utilize the tactics that are used by the dishonest manager in order to benefit the kingdom of God. And Jesus is so serious about this that he ends his parable with this. And I think this is fascinating. He says, if then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, I don't understand what that means at all, Alex. 
Let me try to just make it clear for you, because what he's saying here is pretty remarkable. So what he's telling his disciples is that they need to use dishonest wealth for the benefit of God's kingdom. In fact, if they're not using dishonest wealth, if they're not acting like the dishonest manager, then what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God actually is not going to come to fruition, that they need to use wealth that was gained by dishonest means. Now, if this is confusing to you and you're like, I don't understand why Jesus would say this, I want to tell you a story that will help you understand exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to get at. I want to tell you a story about one of the greatest philanthropists of all time, a man by the name of Andrew Carnegie, who I'm sure you all know he was one of the great steel magnates of his time. So Andrew Carnegie was known for his generosity. So he gave away lots of money. He gave away money to build 3,000 libraries all around the world. So these libraries, he really believed in the idea that people should be able to uh, enhance their lives with education. And he didn't get to do that when he was growing up. And so he felt that people needed knowledge as a way to improve themselves. He also made uh, the Carnegie Institute of Technology. This, of course, is what is today Carnegie Mellon, because, again, he believed in education. He also gave millions of dollars away to other academic institutions. Probably the most important of those was the Tuskegee Institute, which was created by Booker T. Washington. And this was, of course, one of the first institutions made specifically for African Americans. It was one of the first institutions of higher learning for that group of people who had been, classically, they couldn't even get into any education at all, and he supported this. So another way that he gave was he actually gave to churches. He donated money for 7,000 church organs. He gave $1.5 million to be able to produce the Peace Palace at The Hague, which houses the International Court of Justice. And he created a pension fund for the steel workers who were part of his plan, so they had something to live on after they died. So out of his entire fortune, Carnegie gave away some $350 million, which in today's money would be about $80 billion. <clears throat> That's what he ended up giving away over his lifetime. And he has this remarkable quote, which I absolutely love. This is the quote that he says. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. The man who dies thus rich dies disgraced. Carnegie believed that if you were somebody who had wealth, it was your job to enrich society. That's why you were there. That was the, the point of you having that money, that you were to give that back to make people's lives better. And he also believed, he also showed sympathy for the progressive income tax, taxing as you get higher in your income bracket. And he also showed sympathy for the inheritance tax. And the reason why is because he had seen how inheritances have been passed from generation to generation by the gentry back in Scotland where he was from. And he believed that that resulted in laziness. It gave them no reason to have to work hard. Now, that's what Carnegie did for the world. But something that's very important to understand is that as generous as Carnegie was 
with his money. That money came to him by means of dishonest wealth. It was through dishonest means that he was able to make that money. So it's important to know Carnegie was not born a wealthy man. He was born over in Scotland, and his father was a handloom weaver. And he did a good job with that. They made okay money. I mean, they subsisted. But then at a certain point, things got really bad, and they decided that they were going to move to the United States. And so his father borrowed money, and they immigrated here to the U.S. Now, this picture that you're seeing, this is a picture of Andrew when he was probably about 12 or so, and his younger brother, Will. This picture was taken sometime around when they immigrated to the United States. We're not sure if it was taken before or after. But essentially, they had run out of money. His father had to borrow money to get to the United States. And when they got to the U.S., they ended up getting a job in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at a cotton mill that was owned by a Scotsman. So the Scotsman said, you're from Scotland. Come on over. I'd be happy to employ you. And this was where Andrew Carnegie got his <coughs> first job as a bobbin boy. He was removing spools of thread 12 hours a day, six days a week, and he was paid $1.20 per week. Now, eventually, he ends up getting a job as a telegram messenger, and he was known for this because he memorized where people lived, and he also memorized people's faces. So he was very quick. He'd be on the street, he'd be out, and he would be able to deliver the telegram. And this got him noticed, and eventually he worked his way up where at the age of 18 he became... Uh, a telegraph taker. And that was something that he did so very well that it allowed him to get noticed by his boss, a man by the name of Thomas Scott. Now, Thomas Scott, he was a, uh, he was, he oversaw the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he liked Carnegie so much that he decided he wanted to have him come over and work on the railroad. So he took him off of the uh, telegraph operating, brought him over, had him start working there, and then by the age of 24, Carnegie had been promoted to become the superintendent of the Western Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Now, aside from the job itself, what Thomas Scott did for Carnegie was to actually help him to make his first investments, because Thomas Scott had insider trading information. He knew that if they invested in these sleeper cars that were about to come out, that they would make a lot of money. So Carnegie puts in about $270 into these sleeper cars. And as a result of that one investment, he ends up getting $5,000 every month as a result of this investment. And so this ends up putting out a lot more for him than he had previously. So he takes this money and then he ends up investing that after the Civil War into the Columbia Oil Company. Now the Columbia Oil Company, they have all these wells and these wells are producing a million dollars a year in dividend. So he takes that money that he earns from that and that's when he decides he's going to invest in the steel industry because from his time in the railroad, Carnegie knew that steel was going to be a very hot commodity. He had gone over to the UK, he had gone back to Scotland, and he saw some of the steel factories over there, and he decided to bring that concept back to the United States. And so he literally remade the steel industry from the ground up. He remade all portions of it. So originally you had different people extracting the ore, doing the factories, taking things to market. He did all of it from top to bottom, 
from the extraction of the ore to the creation of the steel in the factory. And there you can see in this picture that actually what's happening is they're taking the ore directly into the factory. So literally the trains are taking it directly there. So there was, no, there was nothing they had to do to transport it any other way. Literally they took it directly in from the extraction. Then you had the people who worked on it in the factory and then you had people who would take it to market. So Carnegie employed thousands and thousands of people with this, making all of these factories from the ore to being able to sell it. But Carnegie, he was a hard boss. He expected his workers, his steel workers, to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And he pushed them extraordinarily hard to produce high volumes of steel. And of course, what this did was it caused a lot of accidents. To give you a sense of just how many accidents it caused. In the 1880s, when all of his steel mills popped up in Pittsburgh, if you look at the deaths that occurred in the 1880s, 20% of those deaths can be attributed to steel worker accidents. And when people died in his steel mills, he didn't really care that much. He had very little sympathy for them. As an example, there was a big accident in one of his steel factories. A machine blew up and a number of people died. He cared more about the loss in production than he did the loss in life. And he was a man who was very, very focused on the money he was bringing in. Even though he was personally making money hand over fist, in 1892, he ended up reducing everyone's salary by 30%. Now, this led to what was known as the homestead strike. This is when all of his workers walked off the job because they wanted better working conditions because, frankly, they were all getting killed, and they wanted better pay. Now, up until this time, Carnegie had been known, actually, as being pro-union. He had been known as being pro-worker. But while he was away, he allowed one of his associates to deal with this problem, and they called in hired muscle. And that hired muscle comes in, and there's a huge, there's literally, uh, they have a shootout. Ten people die as a result of this. And that was the point from which Carnegie was no longer known as a friend to the worker. And, in fact, because of this particular incident, it set the workers' right movement back by decades. Now, I will say that as much as his steelwork and all these other things produced deaths, the fact is that's just the tip of the iceberg. Perhaps one of the grievous sins that he committed was something that occurred with a group of his friends. So a group of his friends, it was him and 50 other very wealthy people, they formed what was known as the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. And it was called South Fork because it was a piece of land they had bought around the town of South Fork, Pennsylvania. So this was meant to be a reserve that he and his friends could use in order to go out and hunt and fish and enjoy their time together. Now, when they bought this piece of land, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania told them that in 1839, there had been a dam built as a part of a series of canals on that piece of land. And that dam was now their problem, and the dam was actually falling apart and needed to be repaired. Now, these were some of the wealthiest men in the world that could very easily afford to repair the dam, but they ignored the warnings. And on May 31st, 1889, the dam gave way, sending millions of gallons of water downstream. And what ended up happening is that it comes down and it hits the town of Johnstown. And it just wrecks the town. You can see in this photo right here, like all the houses literally were just destroyed. 2,209 people were killed in that accident. Carnegie and his associates, they were never, 
they were never investigated for this. They were never charged with any wrongdoing because what they did was they used their considerable wealth and influence to disconnect themselves from the investigation and they quietly dissolved the club. Now what's interesting is that Carnegie's philanthropic efforts began in earnest after this accident. So why have I told you this story? I've told you this story because as much good as Carnegie's money has done for our society, and it has done a lot of good, the fact is that money is not clean money. That money was made by dishonest means. It was made on the backs of laborers who were underpaid, hurt, maimed, and in some instances, even killed. So does the fact that that money was used to benefit our society does that make it okay? Does that compensate for the sins of how it was made? And I think you could make the argument that the reason why Carnegie started giving away so much of his money is because he was trying to make up for, atone for his part in the deaths that took place as a result of what happened at South Fork. And so I pose to you the question, do you think that Jesus would look at Carnegie and praise him for helping to build God's kingdom in the same way that he would have praised the dishonest manager? Now, in order to answer this question, we need to dig deep into this parable and understand a much, much more profound message that you may not notice when you're just reading it on the surface. And it's a very interesting question that's posed, which is, is there such thing as honest wealth? Is there such thing as honest wealth? Is there such thing as money that is free from the stain of sin? And I know some of you are saying, of course there is, Alex. Of course there's money that's free from the stain of sin. But I want you to think about it. Every dollar you've ever earned in your life has come from other places. And you don't know where that money has been. Let's use a hypothetical situation here. Think about a hypothetical. You own a company that makes bottled water, and you sell that bottled water for a dollar apiece. When somebody purchases one of your dollar bottles of water, you don't know where that dollar came from. You don't know how it was made. It could have been made through the sale of illegal drugs. It could have been made through the sale of illegal firearms. It could have been used to pay for sex. You don't know. And if you're sitting there saying, well, Okay, Alex, like, I get that some of that money is going to be used for that, but not all of it. Well, you should know there was a 2009 study done at Dartmouth where they actually examined all of the dollar bills that they could come across. They had a large sample of it, and what they found is 90% of all U.S. currency has trace amounts of cocaine on it. 90%. So if you have 10 bills in your wallet, no matter, no matter what the denomination, nine out of 10 of those bills have cocaine on them. So you don't know where that money has been. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And somebody comes in, they purchase your water. That purchase, part of that money goes to pay for your salary. And so your salary is being paid through money that was used in dishonorable ways. And the same is true for me. I mean, it's really no different. So my salary is paid by you all putting money in a plate. That's how I am paid. And I don't know where that money came from. And even though I know most of you here that you all 
are good people and you really tried your best, obviously, to have honorable jobs, the fact is that some of the money that you have in your bank accounts, that comes from criminal enterprises. It is estimated that 5% of the GDP of the United States is the result of criminal money laundering operations. So that money, it finds its way into our 401ks, our annuities, our pensions, and you all use that money in order to fund the church, to fund my salary. The point being, no matter how ethical you are personally, at the end of the day, all money is dirty in some way or another. So the question that this poses is it leads us to this larger point in the parable, which is that there is no such thing as honest money. Like, ultimately, that doesn't exist. Honest wealth does not exist. And so what Jesus is trying to help us to understand is that money is simply a means to an end and nothing else. To the extent that money is able to help promote the kingdom of God, that is what makes it worthwhile. That's what makes money useful. Now, what that means is that on some level or another, Christians are all like Andrew Carnegie in the sense that we are taking our dishonest wealth and we are trying to change the world for the better, which I know might sound kind of crazy. Like, I know you're sitting there thinking, like, I don't think I necessarily agree with you, Alex, but I want you to think about something for a second. Think about the people who Jesus used to associate with. Last week, I told you about how Jesus was judged for spending time with tax collectors and with sinners. And I told you that sinners are prostitutes. And I want you to imagine Jesus is spending time not just with one prostitute, with many. And just imagine that one of these prostitutes gives him money for his ministry. So they hand it over. How did they earn that money in the first place? Well, they earned it by dishonest means, right? And you know that he would have taken it. They would have said, here, here's my money. Take it. You can feed your disciples with it. Now, what this does, when you think about it from that perspective, is that it dispels this mythology that everybody who's in a church, that these are good, kind, loving, generous, good-hearted people, like that everybody's respectable, right? And that the money is given is as pure as the people who occupy the pews. The fact is, Jesus is saying that's total nonsense. The truth is, is that when it comes to money, we are all part of a corrupt system, and that money can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that our role as Christians is to take that money and to make sure that it's being used for good. And that's exactly what we're doing in this church. You all gave to the Community Relief Fund. So last year, literally a year ago, all of this stuff started to happen, and then we had the Community Relief Fund that came about as a result of some of those checks that were sent from the government. We said, if you don't need that, hand it over. Many of you donated, whether you got the checks or not. We had a lot of money that we were able to use to help people who were struggling a lot, people who were on the verge of losing their homes. They couldn't afford to pay for their rent or their mortgage. They couldn't afford to pay to fix their car, and then, of course, that would cause them to lose their jobs. They needed this gap in their 
pay, where they were missing something, where they didn't have enough money to get by. And had we not given that to them, the dominoes would have started to have fallen for them. They wouldn't have had a car to get to their job, and then they wouldn't have been able to pay for their housing, and then they would have been homeless. But you all gave, and you made a difference in that way. You gave to help people who couldn't afford to eat. There were a number of people who just couldn't afford to get the nutrition they needed. You gave, and we were able to help out with that. And you also gave money so that we could pay bills. People paid utility bills, medical bills, even tuition bills, where they were going to get severely behind. So you all have given in a huge way, and you have kept the kingdom of God alive as a result of this. And so what I want you to know and what I want you to understand is that when you give that money to the church, or when you use that money for the creation of God's kingdom, it cleanses it in a way. It makes it so that we're taking it and we're doing what Jesus said. No money is clean, but you clean it up a little bit when you go out and you use it for the benefit of God's kingdom. And each of us one day, we're going to be in the place of the dishonest manager. God's going to sit down with us and take an accounting of how we use the resources that, was given, that were given to us. And my hope and my prayer for each of us is that when God looks at that, God says, you know what? I'm really proud of you. Good job. I wasn't expecting you to be able to do that, but you took that money, you used it, and you made a huge difference in the world. And I hope that each one of us in here, when we come before our maker, that we will get that praise for the things that we've done to help create God's kingdom here on earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.